What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! Yeah! Yeah! My name is Jerry. We're joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Greg. What's up? We got Ryan. What's up, film fans? And we got Austin. Yo. That was my best prawn language. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I should have done it better. Uh, prawn's an offensive and problematic term. I'm going to have to. Yeah, yeah. man. Okay, yeah, okay, but... okay. Come on. <laughs> Hella problematic. You're going to lose your show. Yeah, dude. You're going to get us thrown off the platform. Anyway, today we're talking about District 9, the 2009 film directed by Neil Blomkamp starring Charlotte Copley. As always, we're going to go around and see what people thought about this movie the first time they watched it and what was it like revisiting it for this podcast. Let's start with Greg. Oh, shit. On the spot, District 9. First time I watched this. This is like 2009, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Man, I watched it and I heard it was like a Peter Jackson film. And I'm like, oh, Lord of the Rings, dude. All right, let me check this out. And um, I'm like, okay, aliens. It's like some racial connotation type shit. Immigra- immigration and South Africa. Oh, shit. You know what I mean? So, like, I I had my feelings about it. And um, I dug it. Um. I like the movie. I like the imagery. I, I'm always into like uh, alien type robot uh, political type movies. Political uh, alien robot movies. Yeah, yeah, I'm all about that too. Political alien robot <laughs> shit. Um, it was good. I mean, it didn't like blow me away. I, you know, I understand. No, it didn't. It didn't blow me away. I understand what the the movie was trying to say. Uh, we got a lot of movies like this, Avatar, and you know, you know, <laughs> it's like a, it's a ton of movies. Like, I mean, it's good because you know, um, him turning into an alien, so people can realize how it feels to be the outsider, and you know, just racism, and you know, hating these people, even though you took over their land but you're trying to deal with it and we got these colonies that we're going to push people in i get it you know um i dug how the movie was made but you know yeah it's just another one of these these flicks i'm glad i hope you know i hope these movies keep coming out so people will stop killing people uh but uh um you know i dug it so i'm hearing i'm hearing (laughs) eh i mean it's it's in 2009 i thought it was good i never thought it was like I liked Avatar more than I liked this really? song. Sorry, sorry. Bold statement. I, I mean, I probably shouldn't have. Um, I just probably just because of the visual and because the way Avatar just jerked everybody off for like the six months before it came. Um, but um, I dug the movie. I just, you know, I've seen this movie before. That's wow. All. That's it. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry, Ryan. I feel like oh, I heard. No, look, do do Ryan, not apologize. It's you guys, your opinion, Greg. No, do you no, guys see okay. Ryan's face? It's okay. <laughs> all right. Ryan, what do you think? Well, I was blown away by this film. <laughs> I think this is one of the best movies ever made. Really? I would wow. be, ever really? made? Yes. Yes, ever made. I would go as far as to say that. I, not hyperbole at all. It's a fucking awesome movie. When it came out, it was awesome, and it still holds up. Um, I mean, it's a it's got everything going for it. It's got a amazing script. It's got amazing special effects that were great for the time, still hold up. It's like a handheld... Um, you know, it's, it's handheld with really practical, but s- CGI mixed in effects too, yeah. which is a cool style that I like with also, I love all the surveillance footage stuff. True. That, you know, they really use that to great effect. Um, I love, what else do I love about this movie? I mean, yeah, it's like a, uh, a, a body horror man on the run 
you know, found footage movie kind of, which is was so cool at the time, yeah. and it still holds up. One thing that like was different about this time watching it is that uh, oh, and then also it's like a fucked up Star Trek movie or, or, or story basically, you know, just with the socio political aspect that, uh, and commentary and whatnot. But uh, uh, I didn't have subtitles for the prawns. When I watched oh, this movie, because when Joy sent me the, not not Joy's fault, but but when Joy sent me the file, there wasn't subtitles, and I thought I was crazy. I was like, weren't oh, there subtitles before? Shit, that sucks. It it's doesn't actually. It's it on was Netflix, very so. interesting watching it without oh. the prawn language. I wouldn't know prawn language, you know, but it's okay. but obviously Charlotte <laughs> Copley knows it and he's learned it, you know. But it was interesting this time watching it without that and kind of the dissonance between like or just trying to figure out what I, what they were doing, and you oh. kind of can figure out, you know, pretty much. What's going on Actually, i think it was on hulu i watched it on hulu which is okay interesting yeah so anyway i just love everything about this movie charlotte copley's incredible in it yeah um what a good star and then the director who you know neil blomkamp is the man but he hasn't made anything since then and i would say i hate elysium with a passion <laughs> chappie was it, cool but stupid was it, was it cool I, it was stupid but it was a yeah. fun time but this is an amazing movie on yeah. all fronts like it's fun to watch hmm. fun to think about you know, even when the trailer dropped and, you know, just the whole like, they're, you know, you think they're talking, it's a refugee documentary and then it's like, oh shit, they're talking about aliens and it's oh, shot yeah, so I cool. About the like trailer. when that trailer came out, that was awesome at yeah. the time and, you know, and it really got you pumped for the movie, um, which I, I assume was like Peter Jackson's credit to, you know, for marketing it well. Um, anyway, I just love everything about this movie. I have more to say, but we'll be talking about oh, it later. Oh, cool. Yeah, Austin, what do you think? Yeah, I was going to say, in conjunction with the trailer, do you guys remember, I don't know how many cities around the country were, uh, were, were using this marketing campaign, but at the bus stops, they just had like the picture of kind of like a little alien. It was like a minimalist alien. It just said like, I don't remember even what it said. It was like no prawns allowed or something weird yeah. like that. Yeah. Remember? And I was like, oh, what mm -hmm. the fuck is that? Like I didn't – when I first saw it, I thought it was like some avant-garde street artist trying to make a political statement. And then when I found out that it was attached to a film and then it was attached to the trailer that like Ryan was just talking about was kind of – it almost seemed like it was going to be a, like cinema verite or some sort of like a, a documentary. And it kind of switches it around on you and you're like, oh, fuck. This is actually produced by Peter Jackson. Then it was, it was a really kind of brilliant – way to amp up our expectations because that's obviously post Lord of the Rings and everything like that where Peter Jackson's name is just like godlike status right so I was really pumped for the film I saw it and I am in between Ryan and Greg I would say that I would say that there are sci-fi films that are like canonized as the pinnacle right like the 2001s and I just told you I saw Alien in theater recently like those are the films that are in the top tier, right? And they're on the Mount Rushmore, let's say. And I think this film is just one step below, but nevertheless, I think it's very, 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 very good. I'm just trying to be shot, to, to not like over rhetorically imbue my words and say it's excellent, but I'm almost tempted to say it's excellent. I think the acting is fantastic. I think the political commentary is clever as fuck. I think what Blomkamp did with a $30 million budget to then, one, make a shitload of money, but also just the fact that he was able to make something that holds up in terms of how it looks. The production design is amazing. Um, I think the story craft is fantastic. I think the designing principle in terms of the themes and the concepts are really uh, important and intriguing. And I think that's the type – that that's like the mixture of film that I love to see, especially because this is basically an independent product. So for all those things, I really, really, really do enjoy the film. I just don't quite think it's as – praiseworthy as Ryan does. 
How dare you? Well, it's definitely a huge <laughs> standard to say one of the best movies of all time. But I, I, I mean, love I, this movie. I, that, I mean, that's a broad net for me. I'm just saying that this is a masterpiece is all I really mean to say. <laughs> okay, yeah. I love this movie. It's awesome. I loved it the first time I saw it in the theaters, and I rewatched it. And there are some parts that are just really powerful. Like, to yeah. see Charlotte Copley, who, by the way, sucks that he's not a superstar. He didn't really have many chances to make it in America. He he was. I feel like he's in stuff every once in a while, and he surprises me. I mean, he works all the time, and he's great. Really? What's the last thing he did? Um, uh, he, he was in Elysium. Off the top of my head, just yeah, uh, look he at was, his name, he, but he pops up all the time. I see him in stuff, and you're kind of like, oh shit, that's the dude from District Nine, because you, you may forget his name, but he's in stuff all the time. Well, maybe he's just stained in my mind because he plays the bad guy in the American Old Boy remake, which is a catastrophe. Uh, oh yeah, he's in the A Team. He plays Murdoch in the A Team. Do you remember? Oh, you're okay. right. He's, he's yeah. in Maleficent. He's in um, Chappie again. He works with Blomkamp all the time. Uh, he oh, was in, he was in Hardcore Henry. That he's was in awesome. Hardcore Henry. He's yeah. the best part of that. It. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I hope he keeps getting work because he's awesome in this movie. And the scene where he begs Christopher for protection once he's back in District 9 as someone turning into a prawn is just so powerful. Mm. This movie is awesome. I don't want to waste any more time uh, fawning over it because Ryan's already done that for all of You're us. Welcome. You're welcome. Um, but before we get into the recap, I want to remind everybody, if you've been listening to the podcast recently, you may have heard me talk about our Medium partnership. So we're now partnered with Medium, which is a long-form articles website. So we're uploading three articles a week. Go to medium.com slash wisecrack, subscribe to the publication, share our stories. It would really mean a lot to us. We really want to make this partnership with Medium work out. Alec who has been on this podcast before, has been working really hard, um, working with our other writers to make sure we're doing, you know, like basically three times as many scripts as we usually do. So it's been hard work, but we're really enjoying it. And you guys can help us help us uh, continue that partnership. So And remember, now that Wisecrack's there, it's getting hot down in medium. That's right. <laughs> All right, guys, let's go into a recap. So in 1982, a spacecraft containing impoverished aliens, which are which are pejoratively described as prawns, appears hovering over Johannesburg, South Africa. So the South African government houses them in a militarized settlement camp slash slum known as District 9. Fast forward to present day where we follow Wickes, a worker at Multinational United who is tasked with heading the effort to resettle the prawns to another area instead of helping them repair their ship to get back home. Why? Because the government wants to harness the alien weapons, which can only be used by prawns. Wickes raids the housing of a prawn named Christopher, where he finds a mysterious piece of alien technology that sprays him with a black liquid. Wickes' help rapidly decays, and when it becomes clear that he's gradually transforming into a prawn, he's taken into an inhumane prawn testing facility where the government scientists discover that he can now wield alien weapons. Before they can harness his organs for further research, Vickis escapes and takes refuge in District 9. Vickis tries to hide in Christopher's house where he discovers that the object that sprayed him is the fuel the prawns need to fly back home. Christopher promises to fix him if they can recover the fuel so they break into the government building and steal back the object. With the fuel in hand, Vickis starts the ship and heads toward the mothership, but it's shot down immediately by the government, and Vickis is kidnapped by a District 9 crime lord. Christopher's son is able to remotely reactivate the mothership and save Vickis. Using an alien mech suit, Vickis helps Christopher and his son to escape to the mothership. Christopher promises to come back for him and the rest of the prawns now living in District 10 in three years. The final shot shows Vickis, now a full-blown prawn, creating a flower out of scrap, 
for his wife. End of movie. All right, guys, before we move on, this podcast is brought to you by Skillshare. So Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and more. So whether you're returning to a longtime passion project or you're challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone or simply something new, Skillshare has the classes for you. So I've taken a couple classes on Skillshare. One that I really like is called the Writer's Toolkit, Six Steps to Successful Writing Habit. So this basically for people who get writer's block or for people who um, have trouble getting stuff down on the page, this is a really great class. Some of the key things I took away from this class is one thing is making your own space. So always change your environment. If you can't make it to a coffee shop, even something easy like a new window can actually help get your creative juices flowing. I now, because of this class, write down all my first drafts of scripts on a notepad. It really helps just get stuff down. Also, if you do find you have writer's block, I learned to read inspiring works, and if something inspires you, start writing. So that's all from this Writer's Toolkit class. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Two free months. So Skillshare is offering Show Me the Meaning listeners two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Sign up. Go to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack to get two free months for now. And now, back to the show. I know when I'm at writing at McDonald's, I, I at some point have to go. I got to go to another McDonald's down the road. To I've done that some, writing at know, McDonald's. Some, some new uh, atmosphere. Then I go to the other char- McDonald's. You know, I just keep going to them. As long as you bring the same cup, because then you can just refill at their fountain. <laughs> of course, you know, and they have a. a, Man, a, a you know what's up. Yeah, you know, McDonald's did not sponsor this, however. <laughs> <laughs> oh really? Wow. Yeah. I never even thought about that. <laughs> really? Do y'all really write at McDonald's? Oh, yeah. But when Jacob and I were first starting Wisecrack, we worked out of McDonald's a lot because they got cheap drinks and they got free Wi-Fi and, you know, they're not going to kick you out. That's true. That's so, like, counter to the L.A. douchey Starbucks culture, too, right? Like, if you go into any coffee bean or Starbucks, you just find writers and content creators and everyone is a producer (laughs) in the coffee bean in L.A. Yeah. (laughs) It's a deterrent. Yeah. All right, guys, let's start off talking about the documentary style. Um, At first, I wasn't really entirely sure how I felt about it. I wasn't really sure what it adds. Um, There are those moments, uh, because when I first watched it, I was like, oh, you know, Vickis, he's looking to the camera and introducing us to various parts of his job, and I guess that's kind of what it functions as. But I also felt like that could have been achieved with maybe introducing, like, a rookie character that he's training. But on the other hand, I really like how... It initially depicts the prawns as these violent bottom feeders, kind of like how an episode of Cops that takes place in the inner city. And then as the movie exits the documentary style and we go into the narrative style, we start to empathize with the prawns more. So the more I thought about it, the more I started liking it. I I think it it was a very bold choice to start. For for one, it's a bold choice to have such a weird main character for this film. You know, you could have been just he could have been just a straight guy like a Tom Cruise-esque you know, taking care of business person, but he's a very strange, idiosyncratic character. You know, like he has these weird, this weird voice and mannerisms and stuff, and just the way he interacts with his wife and how he's kind of like, kind of a wuss in a way. Yeah, yeah but, totally. But like, also, you know, he's at this uh, uh, position of responsibility. You know, so he's an interesting guy already. And yeah, the, just the fact that you're totally getting the 
the YouTuber version of like like oh here I'm going to mm. show you around my job you know like yeah, like yeah. I'm vlogging kind of mm-hmm. like that's in this insane world that we're building and that's how they're building the world is through this kind of uh, uh, first person point of view documentary which is a really awesome uh, de- decision on Neil Blomkamp's part. It made me think of The Office. You know, yeah. like the, yeah, his character <laughs> and the way he, I mean, like that first, kind of like that first opening scene when he's at a desk, people are wilding out, not wild, but they're just doing shit in the background. It just had that feeling. And him being kind of like a a loser type dude was, right. uh, just remind me of The Office so much. Was The Office, was it that good in 2009? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. Like, it was hop of the yeah, game was, back yeah. then. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, honestly, because that's kind of the one thing that, to me, make make this top level movie and why I like it so much is that it's hilarious. This movie is so funny to me. Hmm, like I funny. love the main character, and then just the insane violence, like people blowing up with blood, like it's yeah. a blood splatter. That's my kind of gore, you know. <laughs> why it's really? hilarious inherently, but also yeah. effective. I really like what violent. Greg bought, brought up with the office because there's a very like when it comes to Vickis's arc, there's a very banality of evil kind of thing because he's just closing his eyes to all the horrors of his job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like that. He's like this kind of meek social climber. He married mm. his boss's daughter, which gets him the promotion. Right. And she's hot, though. Oh, sure. <laughs> so he, best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, the father-in-law even says, "You know, Vickis, he was never very strong." But to the point of the documentary thing is, it almost emphasizes the point that he sees this as this fun YouTube video kind of thing, and mm-hmm. he sees this perceived institutionalized benevolence which is just like this pleasant facade which we later learn is hiding pure barbarianism barbarism whatever the word is i mean i think there are two things going on there right there's the sort of brechtian distancing effect by breaking the fourth wall where you are immediately being addressed which means that you are a part immediately of this story and so i think that they're supposed to then um that that's supposed to inflect into a type of like empathic connection with Wickus and everything that he's doing. So I think that's why it's such a genius thing. And then on top of that, you don't have like a typical leading man that is doing this because again, it's supposed to appeal to the every person that can watch this, yeah. right? It's not someone who's Brad Pitt gorgeous, not someone who's Sylvester Stallone ripped, not someone who's Tom Cruise smarmy charming whatever the fuck he is you know it's uh it's somebody who we don't really know who's kind of just in every person who's a paper pusher and we're kind of brought into this person's story and it's kind of like oh fuck man well let's let's kind of see how this relatively awkward not extraordinary dude is thrust into an extraordinary situation and that kind of plays it kind of pulls on us a little bit it forces us to do a little bit of work and that's that Brechtian distancing thing that it forces you to engage a little bit more. And so it triggers your imagination and then it triggers your empathic involvement in the story. I, I love that. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, Austin, I have a question. There's another element of this that kind of affected me in a way that I don't think it did the first time. But especially in the beginning and then also towards the end, that, that juxtaposition of the various bureaucrats and academics, juxtaposing that with the squalor that the prawns live in. It kind of angered me and just made me like think like, what is this trying to say? Is it just about like the impotence of academia or of the bureaucracy to actually affect any real change? Because that's how it affected me with this viewing. Interesting. Yeah, I I don't know. It it very well could because there is a lot of ambition in academia, right, where we might often think that we're changing the world because of the books that we're writing that 10 people ever in their lives are going to read, by the way, by my book, um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, it very well could be. But another reason why I liked the like intercutting with the academic 
um, kind of documentarian-style narration was that they – it's a nice way of giving you plot information in an expositional manner but in a way that doesn't um, – it, it doesn't – it doesn't like break the rules of storytelling, right? Because it is kind of this cinema verite style and and so it kind of plays with genres a little bit and it, it allows you to one, be like, oh, I'm watching a film. That's that distancing effect. But then also I'm engaging with it and I'm getting information, but I'm not annoyed that it's just too much plot exposition, right? And yeah. so I kind of like I feel that. Like I'll, I'll, I, I think I like it too. The more I thought about it, the more I liked yeah. it because initially I was like, oh, well, Blade Runner starts with maybe five lines of text that explains so much that takes this movie like 10 minutes to explain. Right. But I think the more we talk about it, the more I think that it's time well spent. Yeah. Definitely. And, and I think it's trying to emulate like, a history channel esque yeah. kind of like, like explaining the refugee crisis. You know, this could very well just be about you know South Africa and stuff, which I think it is obviously supposed to be kind yeah. of a one for one, yeah. which we might talk about. We will, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like like you're talking about intercutting. I love there's so many good uh, examples of intercutting. I have a couple here that ju- the editing is amazing in this yes. movie. Like when he finally. Uh, uh, when he finally is a fugitive and run, is running from the the lab, and then you're cutting, intercutting that with the people talking, like the talking heads, you know, who have who already know the events of the film that we're watching. So, mm-hmm. th- so basically, yeah, like you said, you're getting information from the future while we're watching the present, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, which is really cool. He frames it as this significant, momentous event. Yeah, this huge, big event that everyone knows about and that everyone's talking about. And then a re- another good example is just like when, whenever the dad is talking to his uh, uh, daughter and just straight up lying to her face, saying like, oh, yeah, no, he's going to be fine. And then while we're watching him getting tortured, that's just a great, you know, juxtaposition. Yeah. You know, you're getting the, uh, you're getting to know about everyone's relationship in the scenes uh, uh, through the cutting. I love how it's you awesome. said that it's like a History Channel documentary because that's exactly it's it's like a History Channel documentary, but instead of going to the cheesy like fake acting that they do because they have such terrible budgets for reenactments, <laughs> it's like a really high budget version of that, right? Except yeah. mm-hmm. within the context of a of a comment a social commentary so uh, it's fictional but you know you watch a you watch a, a history channel documentary on like the holocaust and it'll like go backwards to some actor playing hitler like doing his hand motions or whatever and doing whatever he's doing with his uh, with his various military personnel and maybe like some jewish people in concentration camps and the footage isn't that good especially like war reenactments it's yeah, they just don't have budgets for it whereas this is done in a way where you're like oh it's actually this is really seamless and uh, it, it kind of brings it to life. It brings the historical events to life a whole lot more because of that. I think the editing is the straight man in this, though. It breaks it up. You know, it breaks up the the hard content from District 9. It breaks up the family, uh, the family beef with his father-in-law and his wife. Um, and it breaks up what, he, what he's going through. Um, mm. It needs it. But it's, it's, it's so much like The Office. His, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's which is which is great. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I really like about his arc is that it's like he, this man who is a monster. In order for him to become a man, he has to become a monster in the sense yeah. like. Um, Whoa! I'm waiting, waiting for this. There we go. <laughs> okay. It's like two seconds into the clip. Yeah, because I mentioned earlier there was like the so. When he starts transforming into a prawn, he finds himself in the same position as the people he was previously oppressing. So in one telling moment, he steals a phone from a guy in the street out of desperation, hearkening back to at the beginning when they 
in that documentary style exposition, they talk they talk about how there were calls for resettlement due to the crime that the prawns propagate, and then he has to eat out of the trash can just like the prawns. Um, it's just I like this arc much more than the one in Avatar. We could talk more about the similarities between Avatar, but he like no longer has the privilege to ethically sit on the sidelines. He has to become a man of action, and he has to endanger himself to save Christopher and his son. And that's why it's all the more powerful that he's just kind of this meek guy at the beginning. Yeah. Well, maybe Absolutely. in the process we yeah. learn what it means to actually be a human. So rather than exactly. think of the human as being this scientifically, biologically designated essence, we think of the human as being an ideal that we are perpetually striving towards. And so maybe none of us are ever actually human, but we're always in the process of trying to become human. What is human? It's the ideals that we think that we that we seem to. Uh, self-designate ourselves with, but that maybe we don't actually live up to. And so maybe he becomes more than human, like, or maybe he just simply becomes that he's in the process of actually embodying the, the ideals that we already claim exist within humanity. And he has to become inhuman in order to truly uh, become humane. And I love that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, me too. Do you guys want to talk a little bit? I mean, it's crazy that this movie and Avatar came out in, both in 2009. Oh, really? That is wild. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. So wow. This is way better. Overload. I, 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 also think that, I, I also think this is way better. So just to give everyone, so both movies follow a man working for a militarized organization that is seeking to extract a precious resource from an alien species. In the case of Avatar, it's invading the Navi to get unobtainium, which is always funny whenever I say it because it's such a on-the-nose name. And then in the case of District 9, the government's trying to get the prawn weapons. And so both follow a man as he inhabits the body of the quote-unquote other, and he recognizes the humanity in them and revolts against his former bosses. And then both films end with this man being changed completely into this other. But I, I like this movie better for a couple reasons, one of which there isn't the kind of like hokey worship of the prawns as this pure, peaceful culture that is entirely connected to nature in a harmonious relationship. I, I don't know. Like, for the most part, the prawns are just as shitty as humans, and I like that because we don't need to build up these other cultures as pure and beautiful and faultless in order for us to want to help them. You know what I'm saying? Amen, brother. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, are the prawns as shitty as humans, or did they just, like, their ship just break down? And they got left there. Maybe they don't have an opportunity to be as shitty as humans, but they're not like they're not like the Navi in Avatar, no. where they're an image for us to aspire to, to live peacefully with the world. Um, yeah, the noble, the like noble that, savage, which is yeah, which is often sure. criticized by all kinds of political and social positions because it it. Um, it can equally lead to a type of uh, tokenism or a type of chauvinism. And um, yeah, that's exactly what Avatar does, is, is it does. It tokenizes the indigenous or the, 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 the non-settler, the non-colonial settler. And rather than having a sort of much more nuanced take on how to understand the experience of the human and the formation of societies and things like that. I think both of them tokenized, though. Like, the prawns are definitely tokens in this, right? In District 9? You don't think so? They're well, not just like... Uh... Well, I mean, we'll talk about the apartheid thing, but um, 
mean, is that that's what you're referring to? No, just I like... mean, of, I mean, of course. Uh, I mean, that's the reason it's set in South Africa. But I mean, they're both. That's why I related to Avatar. It's like the same movie, but in this time, the aliens come here, and you know, the humans go, you know, to their space in in Avatar. It's this. It's the same exact concept of movie. I, instead of somebody taking on the whole body, uh, this guy gradually turns into. The alien. Well, yeah. I I see what you're saying though. Like, and I pretty much yeah, I agree because it's really just the tone and how they're dealing with these new aliens. Yeah, you know, it, it, and because here it's kind of like a warts and all, like the good and the bad, and it, it's not so black and white. Whereas Avatar, yeah, it's basically we humans suck. We are coming to take <laughs> their shit, and. God damn it! You know they're like like the Navi the would have been perfect if we had left. Them. I also like that he doesn't need to fall in love with a prawn like <laughs> a human has to fall in love True. with them. Be like the other doesn't have to be fuckable for me to identify with them. Like, we it. don't need yeah, that's we, interesting, we, huh? We don't need we don't need Zoe Saldana. You know Good what point. I'm saying? Like yeah. I, I can see a, a, a monstrous prawn and still identify that hey, this is a sentient, sapient being. That deserves dignity, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. and it's yes. not bad to make a story that that draws our attention to the need to appreciate the non-human world or the um, non-white world or the non-colonial world. Those are obviously good impulses and good things to explore and to develop. But the issue is if you fetishize nature as being like this place of purity that is the site of, I don't know, bourgeois escape from the city or if you think that somehow uh, that culture is like a degradation and corruption of the true natural human community, then you're making some assumptions about what reality is. You're making some assumptions that maybe don't actually hold and that maybe aren't even really adequate to understanding the the, the 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 object that we're trying to study, whether it be nature or the community that we're trying to understand. And I think that's the problem with Avatar. It just fetishizes nature too much. And it's like, ah, fuck cities. Cities are evil and bad. Um, technology is bad. Modernization is evil, which I'm okay with criticizing these things. But it just does it in a really easy and cheap way to be like, ah, oh, we just need to get back to nature, man. Which is just kind of, I don't know. I think it's loaded with certain philosophical presuppositions that I think are a little bit oversimplistic. That marketing. 3D. <laughs> well, yeah, exa exa exactly. It's like technology is corrupt, but hey, come see this cool 3D <laughs> show. <laughs> well, yeah. and it is a more optimistic yeah. movie, which I can than District Nine, which I can see would, you know, relate to audiences more. At the yeah. end of the day, it's like, hey, this is what, like you're saying, this is what we could be. This utopia, you know, mm -hmm. like think about it. That'd be awesome. Everyone's going, yeah, that would be cool. And District Nine, it's like, man, people suck. And the, the prawns the are just in a new settlement camp at the end. We don't even know if they get saved. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. I love the ambigu ambiguity at the end of the movie with Charlotte Copley's character and with what's going on with the prawns. Like, because, yeah, basically at the end, who knows? The, 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 the struggle keeps going, you know. Yeah, you get the easy redemption life. at the end of Avatar. It's just easy. It's just an easy – it's pathos so that you can eat your little bit of candy and you can feel good about yourself for being a nice, like – you know, white liberal, and maybe you have some guilt and you walk away and you're like, oh man, I got to be better to like indigenous people, but that's okay. I'm still going to keep doing my thing and I'm not actually going to contest the power structures. Whereas District 9 to me is much more challenging. It's much more like, no motherfuckers, right. this runs deep, okay? You can't just like feel good about your white guilt and then go about your daily business. We got shit to do and work to do. And that's why I like District 9 a little bit more politically, socially, you know? Yeah. All right, let's dive into the apartheid thing. Um, so, 
For those of you that don't know, apartheid was forced racial segregation in South Africa from 1948 till the early 90s. It was segregation of housing, public utilities, marriage rights, job opportunities. There was even forced resettlement into segregated neighborhoods, which, you know, harkens to the literal District 9. Um, I found a really great paper by a woman named Helen Capstein called The Hysterics of District 9, who she, because I'm not an expert in apartheid, she was able to pinpoint some specific allusions to various ideas. Um, so one of which is early on in the film, a bystander being interviewed about the prawns suggests eliminating them with a selective virus. Um, and this is a historical reference to a guy named Wouter Basson, apartheid's Dr. Death, who oversaw research into race-specific biological weapons, among other horrors. Mm. There's also the part when Vickis is accused of having sexual relations with a prawn. And so according to Capstein, this moment references South Africa's history of taboos on interracial mixing and sexual activity. It was actually codified under apartheid in the Immorality Acts and Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act, which were frantically and punitively enforced. It also plays on the anxieties and stigmas about HIV AIDS epidemics in South Africa. And uh, there's even a part in the movie where there's a poster that is pinned in the background that says, infected, don't risk it. They're all carriers. Risk hotline, 004, no alien. Mm. Um, Jesus. Which kind of sums up society's fears about the biological and social boundaries being threatened also with, like, the AIDS epidemic and stuff. And then that sign that you talked about that was part of the marketing, Austin, she says that the signs marking zones for humans only are yeah, obviously reminiscent only. Yeah. Yeah, of apartheid-era white persons-only signs. Mm. Apparently, they're similarly um, designed. And, um, yeah, mm. I I always thought this was... I mean, obviously, the choice to have it in South Africa, have re forced resettlement be part of it is obviously a big no nod to apartheid. I always thought this was just really cool. The, uh, some, some viewer left a comment I thought was interesting uh, that I didn't know, and it's it was an... District 9 is an allegory for the forcible removal of people from District 6 in Cape Town. Oh. The oh, prawns right. were the non-white uh, – well, they colored people. I don't know if that's PC, but uh, – <laughs> uh, uh, Well, so they were – so people, people South Africa in, it is. They were, they yes, were codified into four different racial classes. There was <laughs> so black, crazy. white, colored, and Indian. Oh, and then, okay. And then yeah. colored and Indian people had different subgroups as well. But you were actually classified within – Within one of those four, and then maybe subgroups within those four. My ignorance of the apartheid. Oh man! But yeah, so. District Six equals District Nine, or Just flip it upside versa. down. Well, the yeah. difference is it's actually it's thought. like the inverse of it because District Six is where where people were removed from, and they were settled into other camps. Um, so it was supposed to be a whites only camp. Um, so mm. it's kind of. Uh, it's kind of like an inverse of it or a transformation of it. But yeah, they were they were forcibly removed and uh, resettled in like the Cape Flats is what they're called. And um, that was it's like this low-lying land that uh, was prone to flooding, that was positioned um, in a very, a very poor geographical region and then became basically like living in squalor, like a slum is what it became over the years. So – and that's not the only – the only instance that just happens to be the one um, I think in in the a particular region, which is in like the Cape Town area. Yeah, 
People talking shit. People like, oh, I hate talking about racism. <laughs> oh, in the live stream? <laughs> what about know, the American part time? <laughs> I, will, I will say this. If people are interested, uh, I just finished uh, a sort of seminar here and reading group with a group of, of people. We read a book by a South African scholar. Her name is Jennifer Robinson, and she wrote a book called Ordinary Cities. And um, – it's basically about trying to develop a post-colonial theory for how it is that we understand the construction of cities. Now, she's from Durban, South Africa, but she talks mm-hmm. a bit about Joburg. And it's it's for people who are interested in like urban geography or if you're interested in how cities are classified as a global city or uh, how spatial divisions are – are constructed and things like that. So she spends a time, a little bit of time, doing some case studies on the history of uh, Johannesburg in particular. So uh, it's called "Ordinary Cities" by Jennifer Robinson, and it just was fucking perfect happenstance that you that I watched this film after reading that book because my mind was like lit up with. She doesn't really go into um, some of the things that the film kind of is is intimating, but a really interesting book for people to check. Out. And it's super, super, super readable, not like philosophy shit, okay? So for people that are like, oh, I don't know about your recommendations, dude, check this shit out. It was actually really good. South Africa is weird, man. Have you I been? been? I've never, Has anyone been? I've never been to yeah. South Africa. I've been to, I've been to yeah. East Africa. Uh, I'm, I'm cool in South Africa. Uh, even the, like the, the Africans I meet in America that, that have lived, in, that are from South Africa... It's just a you know growing up in that man, growing up in, in that shit, and your 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 family, your fathers or your grandparents growing up in that shit. Ugh, it's just mm. nasty. It's like Boston times twenty. It's disgusting. Um, yeah. So I'm my girlfriend actually has the opportunity to get a job in South Africa, and I'm like, mm, you might have to be going there by yourself, babe. No. <laughs> can't do it, man. I can't can't deal with that. Like deep. That's some deep deep racism right there like ugh. Yeah. people driving around in like armored tr- like fords like if you if you need to have the glass in your ford truck armored because you're scared people are gonna get some revenge on you and the shit that's going like they're trying to give people back their land and shit it's a bomb just waiting to go off I'm yeah, there's some tensions man I had a couple yeah. friends that that recently went, um, a mixed group of people that went, and they reported quite different experiences. Surprise, surprise! But I, I mean, apartheid ends in the '90s, so here we are, you know, twenty-ish years later, and uh, and those divisions are still, you know, you don't just you don't just overturn hundreds of years because you know, I, even though apartheid wasn't codified until the late '40s. It was already pre-existent in certain rules under the Dutch Empire in the eighteen uh, in the eighteen hundreds and um, or in the eighteenth century. I'm sorry. And then when the British Empire kind of takes over certain parts, there was a, a battle between the Dutch and, and the British Empire. But that that stuff doesn't go away when you have hundreds of years of like chauvinism and racial sentiment and xenophobia and that stuff still exists in a lot of ways, like in the social stratification, from what I understand. No doubt. All right. Got to transition out of this <laughs> to talk about <laughs> that this podcast is brought to you by My Wall Street. So <laughs> Austin is laughing at the particular relevance of this, but Ryan, you play the stock market, don't you? Oh, um, every day. Do you really? No. Oh, I thought you did. I thought I you were into this stuff. I was playing along. Oh, okay. Well, Wait, I, guys, I invest. Bitcoin market. Yeah, Litecoin. I invest. I'm critical of economic regimes, but I'm not trying to fucking just eat beans and rice for my fucking life, man. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I've always, 
I think about investing a lot, but I, I mean, I have a liberal arts education, so I <laughs> don't really know. I was never taught about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have set up a thing with uh, my Wall Street. Um, I don't know how to set up a portfolio. I didn't know what would get a, a good return. There are thousands of stocks to choose from. Um, but the cool thing about my Wall Street is they offer a short list of stocks that their investors have spent countless hours researching. Um, I was never coached on this stuff, so it's really nice to have that investing companion. They're there for every step of the way, setting up a broker, and then you can start managing your own portfolio. Um, And with their app, really easy. You can invest and learn on the go. So all our listeners can get access to the entire My Wall Street app for free and use it for 30 days instead of the normal seven days by going to mywallstreet.com slash wisecrack to download their app now and get access to their market-beating stock picks and expert guidance. After your trial, you can continue for just $9.99 a month. That's mywallstreet, M-Y-W-A-L-L-S-T dot com slash wisecrack. So guys, and, and get as started. Their, and as their motto goes... From the wall to the street, to the mywallstreet.com, to the mywallstreet.com. That's a good one, right? That's, that's a pretty good one. I was gonna you say, should be a like, jingle you writer, just, man. You got I the, am one. I am an right, amateur yeah. jingle writer. I was going to okay. say. I've never been hired. Shout out to Little John. <laughs> uh, all right. Does anyone else want to bring up about this movie? You want to go into the mailbag? We have a whole bunch of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mailbag to get through since it took Austin, an extra two weeks to see it. Oh, yeah. I'd like to just take another second to to just say how big of a shame it is that Neil Blomkamp... What's up? No, no, keep going, brother. Oh, well, finish your thought first. Oh, I was just going to say... I was just going to say that that he hasn't made a good movie since this. And and he uh, uh, infamously had, I think, an Aliens reboot go under and maybe a RoboCop one go under, I want to say. Like, Mm. he's had a couple big projects that took years off of his creativity time that I'm sure he got paid well for, but we don't get a movie at the end of it. So basically we've only got Chappie, which we all agree is a <laughs> subpar The kids ET love Chappie. The kids love Chappie. The kids love Chappie. Oh, uh, okay. Do okay. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the Chappie kids and love um, and Yeah, and Elysium, which sucks. Fucking sucks. Yeah. So See, yeah, I kind of dig Elysium. I don't love it's, it, but I'm kind of into it. And I, you like, know... With as subtle and awesome as the political commentary is in this movie, that movie is just a sledgehammer. It is a little movie. Insane. It, 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 is, it does is. seem like it. it yeah. But the sci fi like, in it is great, though. Like, you know, they have that whole medical chair. Nobody dies in Elysium. Uh, well, you know. originally it was supposed to be Ninja from DeAntwerd instead of Matt Damon, and that would have been cool. But then I say that, but then he's bad in Chappie. Like, he's just not a good actor. No. He Wait, who, who would it have been? Ninja. It was originally supposed to be Ninja from DeAntwerd, oh. the, the guy. Yeah, interesting. I think yeah. that would have been interesting if he could pull it off. At the time, I thought that DeAntwerd was such a performance art thing that, oh, well, he could do anything. I mean, this whole performance art thing is so convincing, but I don't know. I don't really you feel, feel differently now? Well, I feel differently after seeing Chappie. Okay. They're bad in that movie. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want to say something, it, Austin? Oh yeah, so people might get mad if we just if we ignore like another kind of interesting element of the film. But um the idea that uh that you know he has to become non-human so that he can realize the ideals of becoming humane or maybe of striving towards humanity in a better way. Um but also the the thing that this film does is it it couches this this racial satire or commentary within the framework of speciesism, right? 
And that's something that I think right now is just a really kind of important on the rise concern that people have. Like, how do you how do you be a humanist and care about the world? Like, particularly with the ecological crisis, right? Like, how do you care about the world, but in a way that doesn't just concern itself with one species? And I think one of the things that's interesting that this film does is it kind of it kind of tries to say that there are deeper connections that maybe even being human, this ideal that we kind of think that we are, is actually being post-human, right? Like, like the alien and human world can coexist, so to speak, um, and that it's important to strive for that kind of egalitarian rule. I think that's really fucking powerful in this film, you know? Yeah, I'll say I, I thought about something similar to that, and I was like, so when we see the prawns and they're getting abused, it's sad, but I feel like it's sad because we can see the human-like emotions in their eyes. But then I'm like, all right, well, if it's conditional upon me recognizing a sense of humanity in their eyes, then how much sympathy is there really for this other? Right. Well, well but then that means, troopers. Well, then that yeah. just means that we have to figure out how to how to t- attune ourselves to those empathic connections right. outside of just the ways that we typically are accustomed to like we obviously like you know this you are a dog lover to the hilt like if you see dogs <laughs> getting put in pain you connect with them you read sadness in their eyes you read sadness yeah. in a whimper and you experience joy in their joy when they're running around can we do the same thing with fish i just saw a fucking viral video of an octopus trying to escape out of a fish market and i got really sad i was like oh my god mm. that fucking octopus is trying to escape a fish market is like a dog trying to escape from <laughs> someone that's trying to eat a dog or something like that you know or a, a abuse a dog hey man in east asia they eat some dogs so i don't know <laughs> but, if but you know lettuce, what I mean? i'm i'm triggered yeah. austin if lettuce screamed while you ate it you would never have a blt again <laughs> probably uh yeah man we gotta just synthetically create all of our consumptive material all right uh mailbag yeah, let's do it. All right, so um, we're going to do some voicemails. Hit us up at 213-534-8807 or 21ElfHut07. We got a couple voicemails. These are the ones that aren't too long. All righty. Let's see what you got, wisecrackers. We got Dalton up talking about In the Mood for Love. Oh, we got to do In the Mood for Love first. Hey, Wisecrack. Dalton from Kentucky here calling in response to the In the Mood for Love episode. I saw it for the first time at the end of last year, and it, like, immediately became one of my favorite romance movies ever, alongside movies like Lost in Translation and the Before Trilogy. But you brought up a great point on the podcast about how the ticking time element added a whole other layer of tension to the film. And looking back, those other two movies, Lost in Translation and... Uh, the Before Trilogy by Linklater, namely Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, uh, they, they use that too. And while a lot of Hollywood romance movies use that, that same device to have, you know, like the, the leading lady about to fly away on a plane and, and never to be seen again, but then the guy runs to the airport, sweeps her off the feet at the last minute, it's just this bullshit ending. These movies uh, that end with, oh, oh, fuck, like our time between us is up. We can't keep this connection going because I'll probably never see you again. Those leave the, the way bigger and more profound impact on me, uh, aside from the fact that they're just directed and acted beautifully. I, I think the idea of a love story ending either ambiguous or, or anticlimactic instead of with the climax typically leads to just a overall better film that more people can connect to, even if they don't want to. Uh, anyway, those are just my thoughts. I uh, love the show, and I appreciate you guys always making me want to go back to rewatch movies and appreciate them in a new way, or just discover new movies. Uh, much love. Peace. Thanks, Dude, Dalton. Thanks, Dalton. That was I a agree. great message. He's a lover, too. You can tell. 
Yeah. District 9 kind of had that, like we were talking about. It's a very, that last shot of him peel, making the, the metal flower is a very bittersweet, you know, like. Yeah. A, well, he mentioned Lost in Translation, and I believe Sofia Coppola, when she won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, she actually thanked Wong Kar Wai because. Oh, wow. Uh, because the movie uh, Lost in Translation, <laughs> it's based on In the Mood for Love. But yeah. Hey, hey, it's classy that she thanked him. She didn't yeah, have to do no, that. No, totally. Um, yeah, you yeah, got to cite a... your sources when you steal their material, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. Right. All right. Let's let's do another one. Let's go, Jason, with Once Upon a Time. All right. Hey, show me to the meeting crew. Uh, my name's Jason, and I had a question for you all about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, I just saw the movie last night, and uh, one of the, the small things that I, I remember that is kind of sticking with me that I wanted to get your opinion on is the scene in which Rick Dalton is sitting on the Western set with the little girl actor, and they're both reading their books. Now, the little girl is reading a book about Walt Disney, and she proclaims Walt Disney to be a genius and a visionary, and then asks Rick what book he's reading, and he's reading a Western about a character who is undergoing a very similar arc to Rick himself in this movie. And so I was wondering, and then the little girl then says, well, that sounds like an amazing story. So I was wondering, what is Quentin Tarantino saying, if anything, about possibly the studio system today, about how Walt Disney movies are uh, have taken over kind of every corner of the box office, especially this summer, the uh, with Lion King and Aladdin and uh, Spider-Man. And I'm wondering, is Tarantino saying that maybe both his smaller character-driven movie and the big studio movies can coexist in a world and there's an audience for both of them and they can both be appreciated and they're not mutually exclusive? Or is maybe he kind of patting himself on the back and putting himself alongside the visionary status of Walt Disney. Uh, that's just one of the takeaways I had, and I'm curious uh, what you guys think. Love the show. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Bye. Nice. Dude, good catch, Jason. <laughs> I, Jason, good, good voicemail, but I, I, I think you're wrong. I think that uh, uh, this is all he was saying with that was – um, oh man, okay, I gotta, I gotta put this reference in. Oh, Walt Disney, I love him. Okay, I gotta put this reference. This cowboy book's cool. I think it's cool, and other people might think it's cool. What other cool stuff do I like? What's on my bookshelf? Oh yeah, I'm gonna put that in the thing. You know, people might think that that's cool. That's my opinion. You're feet, a hater. Are you a Tarantino feet. hater, Ryan? I'm a Tarantino lover, and I, it's hard love because right now I <laughs> think he's in a slump, love. the biggest slump of his career. Man, he's just masturbating on a on celluloid and then calling it art. <laughs> I don't know, well, man. That, I love that... a little bit of masturbation onto some celluloid because I thought that one was <laughs> hey, like, like fantastic. You're right, me too. Oh, you loved it. Good deep. Oh, I fucking loved it, bro. And it's I think crazy how many people Ooh. fucking love it or just like are like, what was that movie? And yeah, I think you know? that this that this voicemail is absolutely Tarantino because what happens is is her attention she puts the book down and she gets invested oh. then in Rick Dalton's book and into Rick Dalton himself. <laughs> and then she becomes um, like a fan of him. And then the, I fucking cried when she said, that's some of the best acting I've ever, or that's the best acting I've ever seen. And that look in Dalton's face, you're just like, oh my God. So I would say that Tarantino is actually trying to vindicate his own approach against yeah. the kind of monopolizing studio system of Disney. By the way, shout out. We have a badass video that I helped do the research on. Uh, precisely on this, on platform capitalism, on uh, the Wisecrack channel. So if you haven't seen it, check that one out. 
but go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to think that there's some relevancy here. The one thing I would say is that he does tell this girl that if you don't understand what it's like to be washed up, you're going to experience it in 15 <laughs> that years. That was hilarious. Which, which is so I, true. Which I don't think is really going to apply to Disney. Because this, I, I mean, I don't know. I believe that so long as there are movies, there's going to be Disney Ugh. probably for the foreseeable future. They're, yeah, they but I they think, have like sixty percent of the big, the the market. This but I, but year I, or I love the idea of the 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 fresh face new girl <laughs> obsessed with Disney who owns the box office now, uh, contrasted with the old guard Western guy which used to dominate the box office back in the day. Mm. Great shit. Mm. Uh, all right, uh, let's go into the mailbag. So hit us up. Movies at wisecrack.co. That's not dot com dot co. Did so, you did you guys see Lion King? I didn't. Did you? No. Did yeah. you guys see Aladdin? No. No, I, I've I've skipped them. I saw. We're, jungle, we're I apparently saw the only book. ones though. Because they listen, made I just want to have kids dollars. so that I can catch up on all these uh, remakes and shit like that. That's the only reason trash. I want to have kids. Because I, I then I'll have an excuse, you know, and then I I get to. You don't need an excuse. I, yeah. I, know. <laughs> I go yeah. see kids' movies by myself. Almost <laughs> sure every weekend. Yeah. I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time. So then I'm forced into it, you know. All right, so this is from Thomas. We got a lot of emails like this. I wanted to discuss the Charlie Manson subplot of the movie. I agree with Ryan that the audience should be familiar with Manson and his cult to fully experience the catharsis from the ultraviolence at the end. Though the movie was clear that the family is a violent cult, it portrayed the female cultists as happy-go-lucky 20-somethings, which is sure to confuse an unfamiliar audience with the ending splatters gratuitous blood. This isn't the problem right now, however, because I think that Manson and his cult are still in the collective consciousness of most adults in America. Some moviegoers in the auditorium even cheered as Cliff bashed in the face of one of the Manson cultists and Rick burned the other one alive. It'll be interesting to revisit the film in five years from now and get a reaction from much younger audience members. We got a ton of emails of people saying that I didn't know about the Manson murders. Exactly. I felt very I, vindicated. Really? Yeah. It, they didn't know about the Manson murders. They didn't know who Sharon Tate was. Wow. And, and they said that they... Because if you do know, then you're watching the movie from this perspective of, oh, the specter of Charles Manson, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. We all know what's going to happen. But if you don't know, then you're just like, oh, cool. We're hanging out with some bros. <laughs> I guess you know? you're right. Yeah. yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah, going to be think, a Manson I think movie like, soon. They're like I'm sure. yeah. ways that this contracts. Like one, you have to know who Manson, you have to know a little bit about the family, and you have to know a little bit about the Tate murders. But then two, I think another layer is if you're from L.A. or if you lived a long time in L.A., then that will also kind of add another layer of connection. And then the third is is if you're involved in the industry in any way. Yeah. And I think uh, if you if you have all three of those, then this film has so much more meaning to you because you go into this understanding how that event has affected Hollywood, um, how people understand that. Um, I grew up with my friends. We used to go to abandoned like chicken coops and ranches and shit like that around Southern California that were supposedly places where the family used to like – um, squat. So, like for me, the Manson story looms quite heavily. So that's why it had such an impact on me seeing the film. You know, mm. we got another one from Jimmy. He says, uh, "In your show, me the meaning on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you brought up the question of what it's like to see the movie without knowledge of the Tate m- murders, and I can definitely answer. Me and a couple friends saw 
that the movie was getting great reviews, so we decided to head over to the theater to watch it, and we had no idea what it was about other than having something to do with Hollywood and its prime. It's so funny. Maybe it should be stated that many of us are Gen Z and never really knew of the history of the Tate murders. For the first hour, me and my friends kept trying to figure out the plot or the storyline or some mm. action that was pushing the story forward. It felt as though there was only the initial push with Rick and his producer and then nothing after that. I grasped the symbolism and the commentary of the film industry, but I did not realize that there was a looming threat of the Tate family being murdered. When it came time to beat up the Mansons, we were all very surprised to see them get murdered. To us, it was comical how badly they were beaten up. It made no sense as to why they were so brutally beaten out of nowhere. Hmm. I understood the Mansons were devout on killing, but it surprised me how hyper-violent it was to characters that meant nothing to me. And for Rick to use the flamethrower on the Mansonite in the pool, it just made us all question the point of the movie. Mm -hmm. From our perspective, mm -hmm. Rick hates hippies, but for him to kill someone that was so bloodied and beaten that just fell in his pool, it felt over the top for no reason. When we Where's were discussing, this the... does this person say where where he or she is from? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> what does that have to do? With well, it? well, because, because I'm in a, I'm in Australia. Oh, got yeah. it, got it. And, and we I saw this. I saw this in Sydney, and I actually had a conversation with some audience members who said the exact same thing. They were young dudes, like either young young millennials or like Zoomers, and they were like, "That is, there's no reason, there's no justification for that violence at the end." Da, da, da. And I said, "Do you know who Charles Manson was?" Do you know who Sharon Tate was? Are you familiar with the Tate murders? They had no clue. So I explained it to them and they said, oh, well, that sucks. Because <laughs> they, they didn't yeah. get it, you know? You think Tarantino knew that? Like he, of course. It, it, no, all to, he to, needed he, is to, a, a To lot. him, a scene. One scene to, to set up who that is. And I guess you could you can argue you don't need the scene. And people obviously love this movie. So they're like, you know, who obviously know everything about the murders. But I think just for the... Majority of your young audience that doesn't know shit, we clearly are getting emails, you know. Mm. Like I think he's they, in a hardcore bubble. To him, he Tarantino hasn't exactly. met any, Tarantino hasn't met anyone in ten years who doesn't know all of Sharon Tate's filmography. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think that's that's so cool for like you know I I I think if if Tarantino knew what he was doing and that he knew other people would have different views of this, I think that's cool because now those kids know for sure. Who Manson is, uh, especially if they watch so this is a big learning. This is a Discovery Channel uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. expose. Yeah, this is the worst. They're gonna learn exactly what didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, we're gonna do two more from Chase. You guys talked about how a lot of the many scenes in the movie felt superfluous, and I have to strongly disagree. I left the movie feeling like it had an almost Edgar Wrightian feel to it and that it seemed like it used the concept of Chekhov's gun less like a simple tool and more of a more of a plot outline. Nearly every scene in the movie had some hand in setting up a domino for the end sequence. The mm -hmm. dog, the flamethrower, the acid cigarette, Cliff's familiarity with the family, the pool, and how Rick tends to float back there blasting music through headphones when he gets hammered. Cliff's potential psychopathic tendencies and also his aptitude for hand-to-hand -hand combat. Mm -hmm. Every aspect of the fight is carefully constructed through the lens of the movie. Nothing in this scene came out of nowhere, aside from the fact that it deviates from what happened in reality, a reality which is never explicitly told to us by the movie. It's a pre-existing notion brought into the theater by the viewer and subconsciously stoked by the true crime-style narration that kicks in after the time jump. This is also possibly a reason why the goals of the Manson family are never explored. It makes it so the twist isn't unfair. If you thought Sharon Tate was going to be murdered in the movie, you brought that with you to the theater from Chase. I, mean, I agree 100% with that. People were talking about what's the point of the Bruce Lee scene. It's precisely like he said. You want to know that Cliff has uh, some sort of skills with hand-to-hand -hand combat. And I think there are some other reasons that kind of tie into that as well. 
kind of introducing uh, a fresh new character that can sort of deconstruct, if you will, a, a mythological character that creates some sort of attachment to the new character, which is the Cliff character. Um, I think there, that's exactly right. Everything had a purpose, and it does tie together. It's just that it's done in a kind of scattershot sense, and so it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't seem to be as um, streamlined, but I think it all does culminate. There's the payoff comes at the end. Not every payoff. There are a couple payoffs, like Sharon Tate learning martial arts with Bruce Lee. I thought maybe because I actually had an inkling of the ending before I saw the film. I thought maybe that she would somehow be involved in some ass kicking of the the hippies, which I thought would have been a really nice touch actually to give her a little bit of like revenge, um, so to speak, like revisionist revenge. But but most of it is most of the setups are paid off at the very end, and they do kind of tightly come together. Three so, hours later. Yeah, my only thing about that, and I mostly agree, but <laughs> the violence is so over the top, which I love, but it breaks the fourth wall to the point where, okay, this is just, you know, we're basking in this revisionist history, this fantasy, yes. to the point where even if... It wasn't established that Brad Pitt's character was a badass, could use hand-to-hand combat and everything. We would still break ourselves out of it and see, okay, this is the quote-unquote money shot of the movie, which we can break all of the existing logic and just revel in the fact that we're changing history and we're correcting history so that these horrible murderers get their due. But it's also important because he smokes the acid cigarette. So you're like, he's playing with expectation. That's what this film is. It's playing with expectations. It's dangling a carrot. It's taking things away from you. And so you think, okay, Cliff is a badass. He's potentially a psychopath. He may have murdered his wife. He's also a war hero. He has all these scars. But then he smokes the cigarette. And then you're like, oh, fuck, man. Now he's incapacitated. Now he's going to die. And so then Tarantino kind of plays with that too. You're thinking, oh, he if he were sober, he would fuck these people up. And he's got a badass dog who eats food that's called, like, good food for mean dogs or whatever it is. So that is another element, you know? So there's all these things. He's constantly just playing with expectation. This is, for me, this is actually his most, like, psychological film in the sense that he's trying to actually affect the audience's thoughts and expectations and the mythologies that we bring to to the theater. And that's why I thought the film was so amazing. Yeah. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, So we will be taking a two-week break. This podcast, I'm going on vacation, so we'll see you guys in three weeks. Where are you going? I'm going to Sequoia, and then I'm going to Northern California. It's uh, California. Big trees. With some trees. Oh, nice. Yeah, man. Sequoia's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Have a great time, dude. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. All right, where can we find you guys on social media? Ryan. You can uh, make shorts every week on Ryan Shorts on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. That's my main place. Check me out. Uh, check out my website, man, gregcomedy.com. I got a lot of shows. Uh, check out my art website, gregedwardsart.com, and Greg the Grouch on Twitter. Yeah, Greg's art's fucking awesome, too. Seriously, go check it out and buy his stuff. Oh, um, thanks, bud. Yeah, and you, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin <laughs> underscore Hayden, or Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Check out medium.com slash wisecrack, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Peace. Goodbye from Johannesburg, South Africa. (laughs) Peace.